0: It's a global race. We've got global regulations. It's a race for innovation and capital attraction and talent development.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, product architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, research analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently.
2: Hey guys, how are you? Happy uh, Patriot's Day. What's going on? Hey, Barth. It's a really good
0: day, right? Boston Marathon, 127th uh, edition.
2: That's true. How do you feel about being on this podcast now instead of watching the Boston Marathon? Uh, It's kind of funny you ask because I'm always watching the marathon on Marathon
0: monday and uh i used to have this tradition where if i was in the office i'd go down to the gym and run on a treadmill and try to time my runs to be around <laughs> the same time as the finishers not because i was ever going to run a marathon but because like it's so much more easy to be motivated to run when you see these
2: people like killing it and uh, and you're just chugging away on your midday break <laughs> it's hard to realize how fast some of these uh, people are especially those who run in the boston marathon like it's uh, and they do it for such a long time so that's cool Awesome. So usually, typically, I have a last week I tried uh, protocol. And uh, this time, I think I'm going to put Jason on the spot. And I'm going to ask Jason, A, how was your weekend? And what did you try last week? <laughs> What's your last week I tried?
0: Yeah, well, Parth, um, it was a good weekend, got the spring cleaning done, which is great. But uh, there there was something I tried, and, I, and you guys are going to laugh because it is kind of silly. But um, I actually, for the first time in four years, have successfully removed the doors from a Jeep Wrangler. So <laughs> I had an old Wrangler that I got when my kids were starting to drive because I had always wanted one as a kid, never had one. Uh, we got a used one, and it was great, but we could never figure out how to get the doors off. And it turned out that they must have been rusted on. So. Uh, we had recently upgraded, so we went four years without being able to do it, and the, the newer one made it four days before the, the doors were off and the kids were off to school. And I realized I got no side view mirrors on the thing. I had to go out and try to get some of them, but um, it was it was a good dad moment in my in my household because my kids had no idea that they were going to come downstairs and it was going to be uh, doorless. And let's just say I got some points that week.
2: Jason, did you do you do the Jeep wave when you see other uh, Jeep owners?
0: Uh, it's, a, it's pretty funny. Like sometimes, yes, all the time. No, but like my kids love it. Um, it's one of those things where it's almost like a, a chicken and egg. Like, are you going to do it? Are you not? It's a, a weird subculture thing. But, uh, if, if people don't know what it is, typically, uh, two people driving Wranglers might acknowledge each other as if there's some kind of, uh, fraternity or sorority associated with owning, uh, that type of car. It is weird. I didn't understand it when I got one the first time I was like, do I know that person? Like, who is
2: this? <laughs> That's cool. So I know it's the it's the marathon day, and uh, today we are going to talk about crypto policies and crypto regulation. So I'm going to put Jason on the spot again, uh, since you mostly do analogies. Do you have any analogy for uh, the Boston Marathon and crypto regulation? Let's see if you have one. So
0: I, I do, and I was telling Jack this earlier. So I know Jack's going to jump in it as we go along, but. I was getting ready for this podcast today, and my mind was just thinking about all these people who are lined up in Hopkinton. It's like we said, it's the 127th marathon run in Boston. And I thought, wow, there's so many similarities between running a marathon and being in the crypto industry. So um about regulation, for example, like there's so much training, right? Like people are out there. Uh, no one's watching. They're just out there training. It's just kind of like people in crypto building. In the end, you get to this point in time where you've you've got some rules and you're on race day. And you've got these progressive front runners who are really moving at pace. And some people are trying to stay with that lead pack. Others are just happy to get to the starting line, like all the work's been done. Uh, And then over the course of the next several hours, you're going to see waves of people come across. And it's kind of like crypto regulation, where you've got a lot of people who just started out working on projects. And eventually, they wind up... Getting to a point of trying to bring something to market, and depending upon where you are, uh, you're either going to be in that lead pack, uh, maybe somewhere in the massive middle, or you're going to be one of those stragglers who's finishing towards the uh, you know after dark hours, and you're just wondering, will the lights still be on by the time you get to uh, by the time you get to the finish line? <laughs> I, I asked myself as a builder in this space, like where are we in the U.S.? Like you know, at times I feel like we're ahead, at times we feel like we're in the great at middle, and other times. I feel like we're, uh, we are we really just don't know. And you know, will we get across the 26 miles? But the funny thing is, you really have to stop and say, crypto is not really running a marathon. It's like, you think you're running a marathon in a sprinter's pace, and then you realize all of a sudden it's an ultra marathon, and you just have to keep going. And there really is like moving targets. So you're not quite sure where the finish line exists, but you know you just got to keep moving. So that's, that's kind of how I was thinking about the marathon in crypto and asked myself, like, It's a global race. We've got global regulations. It's a race for innovation and capital attraction and talent development. So I thought it was kind of appropriate that we were going to talk about uh, global regulation today when we have this marathon going on in Boston.
3: I don't run marathons, but what's the mile that all the marathoners say? Once you hit that mile, you feel like you're not going to make it. And when you burst through it, the rest of the race, it's like the 18th mile or something like that. I don't know. I don't know the exact mile, but there's often that that saying of like, there's a certain mile somewhere in there. You think you're going to quit. And then once you burst through that mile, the rest of the marathon, you know that you're going to make it. And it feels like the fourth quarter of last year was kind of that mile where everything was just so painful in the crypto space for this cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now with a positive first quarter, it feels like we kind of have put that behind us and maybe we have brighter days ahead of us.
2: Building, building on to, onto the same uh, story. I feel like I like the classification that Jason has. So you have a few trailblazers, the front runners, you have a few fast followers, and then you have a few folks who are obviously, who are in it without without the intent. And um, I, I, what I feel in, in my opinion, some of the trailblazers, a lot of these countries, especially with respect to crypto regulation, you see a lot of innovation in Asia and Asian countries. I've seen this paradigm shift in how crypto is getting more and more pervasive in Asia and and more integrated in social applications. And just to give you a really uh, small example, so when I buy something on Etsy uh, and if this this item is being shipped from Asia, a lot of these sellers have their Bitcoin addresses on their seller's page and uh, I can pay them directly using crypto. And so one stark difference that I've seen in Asia, especially in conferences in Asia, is that crypto in general, is more positively embraced, and it kind of seeps into uh, folks who make crypto policies in these countries. And I know, Jack, you have some stats around this. Um, So I know what I said is mostly subjective, but do you have any data backing exactly what I said?
3: Yeah, definitely. We look at this sort of phenomenon of almost like East to West in terms of leaders versus laggards, in terms of regulatory clarity, it appears at the moment, Uh, but also in terms of adoption and positive perception of digital assets, And I don't think that that's necessarily a surprise. There was a a report in 2020 from OMFIF, or OMFIF, the Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum. And they noted that in China, a projected one third of point of sale payments were being made via mobile in 2020. And that was double the UK and double the United States. And so just this idea of, digital payments and digitally native assets. I think that builds beyond just crypto and sort of just from a societal perspective of making cash payments and having physical objects versus starting to make mobile digital payments and Asia being just sort of ahead of the curve naturally uh, to fit into and understand crypto. To speak further to that, we run an institutional investor digital assets study that surveys a number of institutional investors, and we break down geographically those investors that we survey into Asia, Europe, and the United States. We've run it for four years. This year will be our fifth year. And essentially every single year, consistently across the vast majority of categories, we see that same trend of East to West in terms of positive perceptions Positive appeals of digital assets, even so far as like recognition of more complex pieces of the crypto ecosystem. So, for instance, with Asian investors, we'll see higher percentage of respondents that show interest in things like staking or DeFi or yield products whereas in the United States, we see very little. And that just sort of speaks to being further up the adoption curve, where initially you're just wrapping your mind around the layer one assets of of Bitcoin and Ethereum and whether or not they're potentially investable projects or tokens. And then once you get sort of further down that learning curve, then you're asking all of these questions around the applications built on top of some of these platforms. And so I think it just kind of speaks to um, just... Again, that that phenomenon of Asia being further ahead uh, than than Europe, and Europe sort of seeming to be further ahead than the United States, both in terms of adoption, and then probably as a result of being further uh, further ahead in terms of adoption and perception, being further ahead in what appears to be uh, you know regulation, regulatory clarity.
2: That's that's great. And maybe what we can do is we can follow the same approach that you've used, which is going from east to west. So let's follow the sun and maybe talk specifically about a few countries uh, which have had uh, positive crypto policies or crypto regulation. And so I want to maybe take Japan, for instance, right? So uh, Japan was in the news last week. Uh, The current Japanese political party, they put out a 35-page white paper with strong recommendations on how they can contribute to Web3. And it's such an interesting paper if you look at it. So I think the project name is called Japan is Cool or Cool Japan. Cool and Japan. The, yeah. Cool Japan, yeah. And the paper starts with uh, with this statement, Japan is back again, right? And so I don't know if you know this, uh, but when you think about FTX and the FTX collapse, FTX Japan customers were the only few customers that have already received their crypto back even after the collapse. And that's because Japan has some really strict regulation uh, and that's that's been on for years, right? So the FTX collapse is obviously not It's not their first rodeo. The first popular hack ever was the infamous Mt. Gox in 2014, um, which most people in the crypto industry know. And then there was one called Coincheck in 2018. But for FTX, Japan forced uh, FTX to separate their customer assets from their own assets. And uh, the way it works in Japan is that in case one of these companies, one of the crypto companies goes bust, the customers get paid first even before the creditors like like banks and VCs. So it just talks about how crypto policies and regulations are so different from what we see here. Um, And I want to maybe quickly go back to the paper because I know Jason also has a few comments. But uh, Japan, this specific white paper spoke about how they wish to promote Web3 uh, within the G7. And uh, the paper really goes into detail about specifics. So they talk about the exact process that Japanese exchanges should go through to screen tokens before being listed on an exchange, which means that they really want to simplify the process of listing new cryptocurrencies on Japanese exchanges. So I think they proposed that close to three different exchanges have to verify a new token which gets added, and then it goes through uh, government verification. And I know we have covered a few stories in the past about the alleged Coinbase insider trading, Or finance has had a few um, issues about how employees or people who had prior knowledge on what token is going to be listed on the exchange uh, and and how that information has been used against customers. So it just talks about how much research they have put in uh, before coming out with this white paper. Um, Jason, what do you think? So. I think it's a really
0: interesting approach for Japan. And if you look at their history in terms of the economy, they've had some challenging times in terms of economic stagnation. And, you know, previously, uh, the Japanese government had higher taxes that were being applied to different crypto companies. And what I thought was interesting, doing some research over the weekend, was that uh, Japan has decided to address the challenging tax policies where if a crypto company had issued their own tokens, they were required to pay a tax on the unrealized gains. So, you know, think about it. You haven't actually realized the monetary value, but you'll pay a tax on it. So they seem to have done away with that. Um, they also had uh, a situation where at 35% um, if the tokens, there was a tax 35% if the tokens were trading on exchange markets. So it's a pretty high tax rate. But now we're seeing that they're promoting some policies that would only tax crypto to fiat conversions at rates that are similar to taxes on stock trading. So I think that's an interesting uh, development. But as you are talking about the the vetting of tokens, uh, there's an entity called the Japan Virtual Currency Exchange Association, or JVCEA, that is an accredited self-regulatory body that was approved by Japan's financial services agency. So now they've got infrastructure in place to do this vetting. Um, And it's comprised of 31 different exchanges. And basically, if a token is trading on any one of those 31 exchanges, it's going to be allowed to be traded on the other exchanges without additional vetting. So uh, that group of of people who are doing the vetting process is said to be between five and eight staff members, Uh, but they're, they're planning to focus on developing and promoting accounting standards for crypto assets as well. So that's gonna help promote auditing standards, again, increasing the confidence that you're getting a consistent treatment with rules of the road that people understand
2: and can plan around. Yeah. And what's more is that it's not just, these aren't just suggestions or recommendations around centralized exchanges, but they also go deep into NFTs, into DAOs, mostly into the Web3 universe. So I think they are also suggesting laws around DAOs on how and where they should be treated similar to LLCs, right, which I think is such a, that's that's such a, a great outcome right just the just the fact that they are thinking in this direction is is great so i would highly recommend re- reading this paper i know it's so this other uh, pdf is in japanese and so you'll obviously have to go to google translate and then uh, and the, the translation is sometimes off but it's it's worth a read it's only 35 pages that that is great so you know we look at other countries uh, jack i think you've been doing
0: some research as well maybe hong kong or even singapore might be good countries to speak about
3: yeah we, we've seen some uh, some interesting news out of hong kong uh especially when you think about hong kong taiwan uh china being a, a big piece of the connection there um and in china of course they outlawed bitcoin mining back in 2021 uh i believe they've outlawed crypto trading and, and transactions uh, for citizens back around that time as well uh, but now we're seeing hong kong supposedly you know, sort of turning around uh, some of the some of the things that China has done on the crypto space, uh, and and so there's sort of some sort of potential implicit uh, you know a- agreement by China possibly to allow Hong Kong to be able to do this. And so I think it's it's kind of this interesting phenomenon happening where Hong Kong's starting to open up. Maybe that means something about China. I mean, don't want to infer too much here. Um, but now you're starting to see again another. Country or location on the east that's opening their doors to you yep. know, more more regulatory clarity uh, and and potentially you know, companies being able to operate in the crypto space. So, yeah,
2: and what's what's also interesting is that it's not just stock, right? So they have allocated budget to just Web three technologies. So the Ministry of Finance of Hong Kong they allocated some, uh, I think it's close to six million dollars uh, to just Web three technologies to solve real world use cases. And uh, when you think about Hong Kong's biggest virtual bank, they are now acting as a settlement layer, which allows withdrawals in U.S. dollars. Right, so it's it's not just uh, talking about hey we should push more towards Web three or we should more push we should push towards crypto. It's actually uh, walking the talk. Well, I think Hong Kong's been active in the space for quite a while. And when you think about
0: it, beyond cryptocurrencies, they've also been looking into different distributed ledger technology applications where. Uh, Some years ago, I remember doing some reading and and digging into uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai Connect, where they were looking at trying to make it easier for people offshore to get access to some of the equities trading on the mainland. So I think uh, while we're talking crypto regulatory policies, a lot of this is also driven by their understanding and appreciation for applications of the underlying uh, distributed ledger technology. So candidly, in my own opinion, I think about the progress that we've seen out of Singapore in the last three, four years, and knowing that Singapore and Hong Kong sort of compete for uh, the, the the opportunity to be a leading financial hub in that part of the world. And I, I do wonder whether or not uh, the competitive juices are flowing in part because of the progress made over in Singapore.
2: Yeah. There are some um, funny stories around Southeast Asian countries too, around, around crypto policies. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this, but the leader of opposition in Thailand promised that if he's elected to power, he will airdrop close to three, uh, $300 or 10,000 uh, Thai baht to every single citizen. So, And I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I, I don't know if he gets elected, but I I think it's it's going to be a fun experiment to watch.
0: I, I heard something like that, but all I can think of in the back of my head is the money printer go burr. And like, I don't know that <laughs> anybody should be attempting to buy votes. It just does not feel right. But I I definitely appreciate the fact that there's a lot of discussion. Um, We we talked a little bit about Singapore before about use of stable coins for payments and a couple of of issuers like, I believe, Circle and Paxos getting the the approval to uh, serve as as payment vehicles in Singapore. But Jack, are you reading anything else or seeing anything else about what's developing there?
3: Well, we've heard a a number of sort of stories uh, or, or rumors around VCs that are established in the United States that are looking elsewhere. And Singapore is one of those places on the list of possible places to go if there's you know not enough regulatory clarity or potentially not having access to you know banking within the United States uh, can also be a problem for these startups. And I know that Singapore has, has been listed as one of those places. And this starts to get at, you know, as we maybe start to shift from East and start moving more Westward uh, in our discussion here of like the fact that, this is global. There are no borders to digital assets, largely speaking, right? Bitcoin and Ethereum and these layer one assets that are adequately decentralized. And it's, it's almost like a, a you know, resource economics 101, prisoner's dilemma, if you're familiar with that, where everybody has their own self-interest as a country. And some countries are choosing to take the side of, you know, pushing for adoption within their their country. And there's ultimately not much that other countries that maybe oppose that can do. And therefore you wind up with what you end up calling a Nash equilibrium uh, of, of sort of everybody at some point has to sort of capitulate in if the industry continues to grow and become larger, you know, use the comparison of the internet. That's what we often talk about sometimes is a lot of large internet companies were domiciled in the United States. And it wasn't necessarily a coincidence uh, if you sort of look at the regulatory environment and you compare it to like Europe using what, what we re- have referred to as like a mother may I type of approach where, you know, there was concerns around monopolies and these tech companies growing too large and having too much power. Um, you know, whether that is the case or isn't the case today, I know there's some discussion of that, uh, but regardless A lot of those companies built in the United States and not in Europe because there was more sort of regulatory flexibility and clarity in the U.S. relative to other countries. And I think you're seeing that play out here. Only this is, you know, instead of the Internet of content, it's the Internet of value. And so starting to shift from East to West, I think that's important to bear in mind is that you can't just shut it off and ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. At some point, if it continues to grow and adoption continues on this trend that we've seen... You're going to need to have regulatory clarity in order to keep some amount of capital in these companies uh, within, you know, your own country's respective borders.
0: I, I think you're right, and you know, we look at it. A lot of these different countries are treating crypto as an asset or as property. You know, and I think that also helps for those countries that are seeing increased tokenization of assets. Um, you know, because it it sort of makes sense. But I know we've been talking a little bit about Asia, but if we swing a little bit further west and maybe hit on some of the the European countries, you know, not an EU member, but Switzerland, for example, has had some very progressive policies and very clear treatment of uh, digital assets. And, you know, when we think about the regulatory framework there, it has allowed them to, to be a leader with respect to the fact that, you know, Swiss law notes cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges are legal. It's legal to make payments via crypto, and those crypto assets are treated as uh, assets from a property perspective. So, um, what I think is also interesting is the Swiss regulator, uh, Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority, also known as FINMA, registers exchanges for licensing and publishes guidelines on how they can legally launch ICOs. So, you know, sometimes we think about an ICO, and we get that cringy feeling of, you know, capital raises and, you know, limited delivery of actual products, but some people uh, still equate an ICO with a security token offering. But in Switzerland, you, you definitely have the ability to bring a digital asset forward that is legally compliant. But then one of the other interesting angles is that the Swiss tax rules are pretty clear. So any entity that uses crypto has to declare it on their tax returns. You know, so if you make, uh, if you're a, a miner, and you're generating income from that mining operation. You pay a tax on the income, but you don't pay any cap gains tax, uh, only you're subjected to a wealth tax if, you've, if you held crypto or used crypto. So uh, pretty interesting, but again, the clear property rules allow for digital assets to exist side by side with other assets like real estate
2: or uh, stock or bond ownership. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's, that's incredibly insightful. And maybe maybe we can talk about one of uh, Switzerland's neighbors, which is Germany, Deutschland. Germany has been in the news a lot for especially for crypto licenses. So you're seeing a lot of German banks now obtaining something called as a digital money license from BaFin, uh, and so BaFin is there, the Federal Financial Authority um, in Germany. And so I didn't know this before before uh, this weekend, but. Uh, it's sort of been illegal on a a legislative level for banks to store digital assets and trade them without a license since Jan 1st, 2020, right? So you still have a lot of crypto firms before 2020 uh, which were trading cryptocurrencies, which were storing digital assets. And that's kind of been in the gray area. However, in 2022, there have been close to 26 license applications by banks and uh, the administration in recent times has just made the process more streamlined, more much more simple, uh, since it really wants Germany to be one of the main uh, trading floors for cryptocurrency in Europe. So I think this is a net uh, positive development. And I think I'm, I'm kind of glad that we are having this discussion because we restrict ourselves to the U.S. Uh, mostly. But now it's, it's good to see that there are so many different crypto policies uh, happening concurrently outside the U.S. which are net positive.
3: You, you have to imagine at some point uh, there's some sort of uniformity to these regulations, right, especially amongst large developed nations. But at the moment, it seems like everyone that is thinking about it is taking their own unique approach just because there's so much ambiguity of what if this technology is going to last, what if this technology is legitimate, and what is not legitimate, or what do we want to see more of versus less of and, like, sort of incentivized through you know, regulatory clarity. And I think it's just kind of interesting that you have these you know, bordering countries that are all sort of taking slightly different approaches or tweaks here and there.
0: I think you're right, Jack. And you look and say, okay, what are the interests of a country versus the interests of a collective, uh, such as the EU? And, you know, I was looking into Germany a little bit as well. And One of the things I thought was really interesting is that um, the regulations there define crypto as private money instead of a financial asset. And if you hold your crypto for more than a year, it's tax exempt. Or if you make less than 600 euro in a year, that your crypto is tax exempt. So I think about the the property rights, but also uh, the tax income that these different countries can earn by having businesses and activity take place within their, within their uh, geography. Now, we've talked often about the markets and crypto asset regulation or MECA that is being implemented across Europe. And there's there's a lot of different um, aspects to that which provide some clarity and that I think will help people understand um, how to do business in Europe. You know, they've got focus on um, licensing for crypto asset service providers around custody administration, uh, how to build a trading platform uh, how crypto assets are exchanged for funds being, you know, fiat or, or other currencies. Um, and you, you can go on and on about the, the types of uh, framework that are being established. But then you also ask, what's going to happen from a global perspective? So each of these countries participates on a global stage. You have these global standard-setting bodies like the Financial Stability Board. And... You know, from that perspective, the FSB has been often seeking to apply a logic, hey, if it's the same activity, it's the same risks, it should be the same regulations, when that doesn't necessarily account for some of the the nuances that are enabled because of the the underlying technology. So um, you're looking at things like cross-border cooperation, where rule gaps can be a challenge. You know, so uh, as these countries come up with their own unique laws, how do you address any gaps that exist? Um, stablecoin mechanisms are going to vary across different uh, countries, right? So, some countries will not allow for a stablecoin to be used if it's not backed with a fiat denominated asset. Um, I know, for example, the FSB is expected to propose some final recommendations related to stablecoins by the middle of this year. So, we'll have to see what that's like. But then you've got the Basel Banking Committee on Supervision, where they talk about different bucketing of crypto assets. Uh, they've got Group 1, Group 2. Group 1 is tokenized real-world assets and stablecoins that are backed by um, fiat assets. And basically, something falls in their Group 1 bucket if it poses the same level of credit market risk as a traditional asset. Yeah. And if it doesn't, it ends up into a second bucket, Group 2. So there's a lot of nuance that can go into those things. I just wanted to call out that we, even though we have these country-specific regulations, they're trying to do some degree of normalization through these global standard
2: bodies. So I quickly wanna get us back to the West, gonna get us back home, but uh, I know we have skipped uh, Africa and I I think Africa is obviously, it's one of the fastest growing crypto markets in the world. Even though it does not have a lot of transaction volume, I think their peak transaction volume was close to $20 million. Uh, But you obviously, you've you've heard about El Salvador, uh, and then we know about Central African Republic, both these two countries have designated Bitcoin as a legal tender, right? And so um, so we might actually need a separate episode just to cover uh, crypto development in Africa and African countries. But um, I want to talk about, I know this has been uh, fresh off the press, Jason, but I quickly want to talk about the the new stablecoin draft bill, which is which just went out. Could you tell us more about it?
0: Yeah, so uh, House Financial Services uh, Subcommittee has, has put out a draft bill. It's published on the site. They're going to be holding some meetings with some um, some industry leaders to try and dive a little bit deeper. I, I think what's interesting here is there there seems to be a lot of similarity with the bill that had been proposed by Senator Toomey in the last Congress. Uh, but I think what we're really looking for is the U.S. to have some clear path towards uh guidelines for stablecoins. The executive order from the Biden administration had done some digging and made some recommendations. But my understanding is that um, the the draft bill has been published on the site. It's circulating among lawmakers. And at this point, we're waiting to see what happens. Is this a placeholder or is this a jumping off point? It seems to me that there should be some level of common interest across the parties in Congress to do something in a stable coin bill, even if it's something as simple as saying that stable coins transacted in the US must be backed by fiat assets as opposed to
2: algorithmically backed, it would give us some some progress. So I think what really stuck out to me was that this bill specifically proposes a two-year ban on all stable coins which are backed by digital assets so think about dai, rai or all these stable coins which are backed by bitcoin or eth the the bill is proposing a two year ban on that so i think it's going to be this is going to be interesting development there's one other thing
0: that happened last week i think we have to acknowledge in terms of like trying to address the question where will the us fall on this marathon jack i was sort of thinking about your question earlier what's that point in time where a runner either makes or breaks it uh, you know being in this community it's oftentimes uh, called like when are you getting on and off the struggle bus? And I think about, you know, where are we in terms of the struggle bus in terms of U.S. policy? And and I I really don't know, but I I did see that last week the SEC was opening up uh, for comment again the question about whether or not they should extend or revise the definition of an exchange. And I found something that was really interesting um, that was published by Commissioner Hester Peirce of the SEC, and... I just want to share one quote from what she put out there and then put it in context. Because Commissioner Pierce was writing uh, and expressing some degree of, of, I'll call it disappointment and frustration, is my interpretation. But she said, rather than embracing the promise of new technology as we've done in the past, here we propose to embrace stagnation, force centralization, and welcome extinction of new technology. Accordingly, she dissented on this latest piece. Now, I looked at that and said, okay, here's another example. I feel like we've seen this before. Commissioner Pierce dissenting, laying out some language about um, why we should be maybe taking a different approach than is being promoted by, by the chair. But what I found fascinating is Commissioner Pierce went on to explain that 30 years ago, there was another time when the question of exchange definition came into play. And it was around the time where uh, a new market trade execution facility around option was created, uh, referred to as the Delta system. And in this context, that the SEC wasn't positioned to regulate this system because it didn't meet the definition of exchange at that point in time. So through uh, court rulings and then a series of no action letters, a couple of years later, after experiencing this uh, new way of trading, uh, It led to the creation of what's now known as regulation or ATS. And we think about ATS nowadays as alternative trading systems, just another way to transact. So I I think this wasn't just a case of expressing frustration. It was a case of referencing past precedent and a roadmap for how we as the U.S. might view um, modifying our regulatory environment based on past experiences. So I thought that was actually very promising I don't know where it will go, but I appreciated not just the the candor, but the, the uh, suggestion for a blueprint that could be utilized. So hopefully we're gonna finish strong. You know, I don't know if we've quite turned turn the corner in Boylston yet. We're probably just cleared Heartbreak Hill when it comes to the regulatory environment. But, um, you know, I, I believe that we're gonna have a lot to discuss in this front uh, in the coming months and
2: years. Sounds good. Thanks for adding that insight, Jason. Uh, and thanks for the discussion, guys. Talk to you soon.
4: Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile can become illiquid at any time and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.